Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Good news, one of the coronavirus vaccines in development seems to work. It may even start to be rolled out in the UK before the end of the year. But the crisis is far from over. We're going to look at what the latest developments mean for the government. Bad news, just two weeks to go until the UK leaves the Brexit transition period and it still hasn't reached a deal with the EU. We're going to talk about what might happen next. And then for our final section, we're going to move on to talking about moving out. The civil service moving out of London, that is. We've got a new report out which weighs up the government's plans to relocate civil servants out of the capital. And its author is going to drop into the podcast to talk about her recommendations. Joining me in our virtual studio today is a great lineup. Welcome back to Alex Thomas, who leads all our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. We're joined again by Maddie Timont-Jack, Associate Director at the IFG and who leads our, our Brexit work. Hi, Maddie. Hi, getting to the crunch point. Another crunch point. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined this week by Peter Foster, Public Policy Editor at the Financial Times. Peter, always great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Bronwyn. Well, let's, let's kick off. Um, the news that Pfizer and BioNTech, BioNTech, I should say, a German company, have developed a vaccine that has shown 90% effectiveness in trials against the virus brought sighs of relief to everyone around the world, big rise in stock markets. But there are still plenty of hurdles and then millions of jabs to go before the world returns to anything like normal, very likely with other vaccines coming in as well. So what's the immediate impact on the government's approach and the increasingly fraught political arguments? Alex, perhaps you can kick us off. Does the vaccine give the government and all of us an end date to these COVID restrictions? Yes, hopefully, though we don't know what it is yet. I mean, as as you imply, Bronwyn, the the government has been um, sort of criticised for not having a really clear strategy, not being able to explain what the end game is for lockdowns and test and trace. So is, are we all locking down and and facing these restrictions for, you know, in in order to build NHS capacity or to um, sort of suppress the virus until a vaccine's available or to give time to build up a, a more functional test and trace system? I think I think this this does give the government an answer and a re- relatively clear answer to that. We are going to be subject to uh, some element of these restrictions until the vaccine has been rolled out, and this um, gives them an answer to that extent. But, and I think it's quite a big but, in the medium term, it doesn't really solve the headache. It actually creates an enormous sort of coordination and um, explanation job for the government. Because if you kind of cast our minds forward to next spring, when uh, in early spring, when the vaccine might be being rolled out, but only amongst certain groups, test and stri- test, test and trace may or may not be functional. We're still uh, potentially having local or even further national uh, lockdowns, both in terms of the government being able to explain uh, what's going Going on and why they're taking the decisions they're taking and what they're aiming at in the short and medium term is going to be really hard. I think it's also going to be a really hard logistical job. There's you know, huge efforts going in in government at the moment on test and trace. Um, do they make a full about turn on that and um, uh, and put uh, all this resource into uh, into vaccine deployment and the supply chains that are going to be needed to do what is a hugely complicated um, piece of work? So I think yes, it does give an answer on that kind of big strategic picture, but it doesn't mean that the the, the communications job or the logistics job is is anywhere near um, uh, uh, resolved. We'll come on to the logistics in a second, but it's fair to say, isn't it? That, I mean, that part of their strategy has been to pursue a vaccine. We've had uh, Kate Bingham and the vaccines are. Uh, buying up for the UK uh, all kinds of um, 
uh, rights to about half a dozen key key vaccines. Peter, um, Sir John Bell, one of Britain's leading vaccine experts, says the country's got a 70% to 80% chance, it's amazing precise that, of being back to normal by Easter if the government doesn't screw up the distribution of the vaccine. But others talk about a one-shot chance of, of getting the, the, the vaccination programme right, no pun intended. What do you think it's reasonable to expect? Well, it hasn't been a particularly encouraging uh, nine months when it comes to this government delivering complex issues, has it? So um, it would be perhaps dangerous to be optimistic. And when you look at some of the logistical issues around this vaccine, it needs to be transported at negative 70 degrees Celsius, etc. You know, you can't put it in a fridge. But that said, you know, it's incredibly encouraging that this RNA vaccine has worked. There shouldn't really be a reason to think that the other vaccines won't work. And therefore... As long as people can see light on the horizon, as long as people can see that, you know, there is going to be hope that once we get into the spring and the vac- and, and the, and the instant of the virus falls naturally with the season as well, then I think it gets easier for the government, frankly, because they can see a way out and they are not reliant on a test and trace scheme, which is clearly, you know, not fit for purpose at the moment. So, I mean, one solid bit of good news for, for the government. I mean, we don't know about the other vaccines, which are, are, from reports are, are based on different, slightly different approach from this. How much do you think is, is going to depend on communications, at which the government has also not been great, persuading people that they need a vaccine and telling them where to get it? Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There were some figures out showing that at least 50% of people would get the vaccine. I, I, I've really struggled to... F- believe that you know if people go for flu jabs they're not going to go for these vaccines when it offers them a way out of what is increasingly uh, a, a, an untenable lockdown situation but I'm, i may be wrong about that but i you know i get there's an anti-vax movement but are people really going to refuse this vaccine i don't think so um the bigger problem they've got is to try and hold the lid on the virus before the vaccine takes uh, uh, effect you know and you see the government working hard to suppress too much will all be right, bright as rain by sw- by spring. Uh, and and the difficulty is they locked down too late in March. They unlocked, certainly for the North, too early in July. And as we've seen, once this virus gets out of control, the test and trace system, if you're testing, uh, if you're tracing 30 to 50 people per infection, which is what you see in places like South Korea and Taiwan, the test, the trace system is simply not up to the job and it's hard to see them suppressing the levels of the virus between now and December sufficiently for what they do have operationally on the trace world to actually bite when we come out of lockdown in December if indeed we do and that is when people I think are going to really you know get frustrated again with the government. And Maddie, we, we've had something called the launch of the, the COVID recovery group uh, among MPs and fans of Tory subplots will we'll, uh, recognise this um, recurring theme. Just tell us a bit about who's involved and what they want. Yeah, so so this is a new grouping of backbench Conservative MPs. I think it's around 50 Conservative MPs, although there's a suggestion the number could still rise. And essentially, they're, they're opposed to, or they were opposed to a second lockdown in England. They're concerned about the economic impact of a lockdown, also the impact on sort of other um, health issues in the country. And um, they're, they're chaired by the former Chief Whip, Mark Harper, and uh, Steve Baker, who is a renowned Brexiteer and who previously led the European Research group, which this group seems to be modelled on, um, he's also um, closely involved. Um, so at the moment, they've sort of got a few key res- re- 
requests. Um, they want the sort of economic cost of lockdown published. Um, they want the scientific advice to be challenged by other um, advice sort of from other experts. Um, but they've also said that they want to um, the government to improve some of the other current measures it's using to try and tackle the virus so that the test and trace um, that we've already mentioned on the podcast so far. So so I think what, what's sort of interesting with this group is that we saw um, a rebellion on the uh, regulations which which sort of allowed for the the sort of lockdown this recent second lockdown in England um, from a, from groups of conservative MPs so I think it was 34 conservative MPs um, rebelled on that vote uh, the other week um, but the Prime Minister has committed to another vote if they if he does decide that this lockdown needs to be extended further and it seems like more MPs would be willing to oppose an extension to this lockdown so we are seeing uh, this group of MPs sort of really starting to flex their muscle um, and, and we'll see whether if if the Prime Minister does decide this lockdown has to be extended further we'll see um, sort of quite how many um, on the Conservative benches are opposed to this approach. All right so even though he's got an 80 seat majority uh, you're saying he's not immune to major rebellions and we've, we've got we've got a decent one uh, bubbling away. Yeah, I mean, that's right. It's been really interesting, actually, to see how um, the Prime Minister has approached managing the Conservative Party this year. I think after the election last year, those of us who closely watched uh, the votes in Parliament on Brexit assumed that it would be sort of the end to any sort of um, big rebellions on the Conservative benches. We wouldn't be seeing any defeats, um, defeat. Um, defeats in the commons but but I think we have seen throughout this year really that actually backbenchers are still asserting their sort of views pretty strongly even some of the sort of big u-turns in the summer came out of um, unhappiness on the conservative benches so what, what I think is more interesting is where they haven't they aren't able to successfully persuade the prime minister to change his approach where they are willing then to to sort of translate that opposition into votes on the floor of the house and as I say the sort of recent vote on lockdown that was I think the biggest um, rebellion we've seen so far and we might yet still see those numbers rise. Alex, we were talking about the government's communications and there's been a big bust up in number 10 with um, at least one person flying out the window. Can you just bring us up to date on that? Absolutely, and I mean, just picking up on what Maddie said, it, it's um, uh, it's striking how that that majority and the, the strength of it is uh, you know dependent on on lots of interlocking things. Whether it's the, the the government's approach to lockdown, the government's approach to Brexit that we'll come on to to talk about, or the way that the Prime Minister is running his uh, Number Ten uh, operation. So you know, as as we record, this is this is still playing out. But um, fireworks in the court of Number Ten, where um, it seems that um, the Prime Minister decision to appoint a chief of staff role which is not filled uh, at the moment there are um, you know two senior people in number 10 Dominic Cummings and Eddie Lister but it's pretty clear that um, at least up until now uh, power and focus has been on Dominic Cummings as the Prime Minister's senior advisor um, the PM deciding to appoint a, a, a new chief of staff uh, combined with disputes and power play around the communications in number 10 uh, has created uh, all sorts of uh, psychodrama i mean the essential you could you could talk about the um, the, 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 uh, the the head of communications lean yes now uh, the prime minister was saying look i'm going to make him my my chief of staff and there was all kinds of protest um yeah. uh, from from apparently Allegra stratton uh, his new uh, uh spokesperson and um according to reports uh, uh, carrie simons is uh, his partner and all kinds of tory mps were joking king not able but anyway the uh, result is he, he, he's quit 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as, as, as I was saying, you could you could you could talk for ages about all the sort of plots and subplots and intrigues that that that, that go on uh, here. But as you say, there are you know there are two key actors in this um, immediate uh, drama: um, Lee Kane, uh, who was the Prime Minister's Director of Communications, but has now um, resigned supposedly over the Allegra Stratton being uh, sort of granted direct access and direct um, uh, 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 input to the Prime Minister and and policy decisions that he would make there as as the new uh, public spokesperson. I mean, trying to see through the uh, the fog on all of this, the the key point is the obvious one, which is it's about the Prime Minister's authority. Um, the the decision he, to appoint. He's lost this. He's lost this. He won- he won- yeah. He, he, he wanted his guy in as a chief of staff and he's lost. And he's failed to make clear what his decision is. I mean, he needs to say to uh, and, and, and absolutely signal to everybody in number 10 that this is my person they have my authority and where there's disputes over that where there are where there's fighting you know the sort of um uh, cats in a sack uh, approach to number 10 he needs to take decisions and he needs to um I- I impose his authority i wonder if it's um maybe i'm reaching too much uh uh, into this, but I, um, we, we, you're saying look, he needs to assert his authority, but isn't this an account of where he did try and do that? Uh, that the fact that Lee Kane was going to be staff was briefed all over the Sunday papers, uh, and now um, a few days later, he's he's not. Isn't this a? I mean, Peter, isn't this a, a case of, the, of uh, Boris Johnson losing a power battle, even though he's um he's at the top? Or not. Yes, I get. Well, it, it all depends what you, which stories you believe uh, uh, as to why was briefed out and who briefed out um, that Lee Kane would be the chief of staff. It's clear that Kane and Allegra Stratton were clashing, and the two roles. Uh, it was difficult to have the two roles, you know, vigorously denied by Downing Street, but there seemed to have been a bust up over who was responsible for the leak originally of Boris Johnson's. Uh, uh, plans for the lockdown. You remember there was great fury and leak inquiries, uh, and and that the the whole question of Johnson uh, appointing Kane as chief of staff was briefed out as a, uh, essentially to try and save Kane's bacon before it was too late by the vote leave faction. Uh, you know, we get you just get deep into the kind of criminology in the weeds. My, my main takeaway is that we need to see now particularly as we get into really into the end game of Brexit, the extent to which the vote leave faction is uh, is weakened by this. You know, is this, you know, we saw it with Trump, didn't we? You know, the, the people around Trump who uh, were from the kind of vote leave end of the political spectrum, the 350 million on the, on the bus, you know, light fires, dead cats, all of that, were in the end, frankly, couldn't manage government. Is this the end of the vote leave faction that frankly you know got Johnson into number 10 starting to fade from government under pressure of delivering on Brexit on the coronavirus uh, or you know will we see them dig in again you know and and I think the, it's going to be really interesting to see how this impacts the final decisions that get made on the Brexit mm. uh, 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 deal which is which are coming up hard on the rails now. It, it, just just honest do you think shuffling all these people or them shuffling themselves is, is an attempt to clarify a message when the problem is with the message itself it's 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 not it's not clear that is is this a symptom you know more than a, a cause of the uh, the confusion that's coming I, I think it's it, it's a symptom of failure because this number 10 like a lot of number 10 setting out try and centralize everything uh, and that would be tough at the best of times but they've demonstrably failed on the pandemic 
Uh, and they're now reaching a point in the Brexit debate where we are going to see whether the vote leave view of things can hold up against reality. You know, uh, uh, over the last year, nobody's really noticed, but under David Frost, the, the British government has pared away all of the offensive uh, UK economic interests in pursuit of a deal that preserves UK sovereignty about, uh, above all else. Okay, so all of <laughs> that, you're really, really itching to talk about Brexit, which we're going to in just a second. But um, I just, I just want to stick on this number. From it, I was going to say one, one little story in the wind um, uh, is that I was uh, very interested to see that Lee Kane's successor as director of communications will be James Slack, who was a Daily Mail journalist and you know uh, uh, was uh, wrote, wrote wrote stories that um, caused all sorts of uh, uh, angst for um, uh, for Remainers and, and so on. But actually, since he became a civil servant and was the Prime Minister's uh, was appointed as Theresa May's official spokesperson, um, is a, an absolutely sort of solid sober. Uh, dependable um, pair of uh, hands. Certainly, I, I work with him in, in Number Ten in the Cabinet Office. Super competent, very calm, very stable. A long way from some of the sort of factionalism and uh, fireworks that we've seen. Good. Well, um, glad to hear it. Uh, just, to, just, just, just to round off this bit. Just tell us, Alex, whether you think that governments, uh, the prime ministers, need a chief of staff. I mean, it's after all a, a bit of an American import. Tony Blair. Uh, had one with, with, with Jonathan Powell, which worked fairly well. But I'm wondering if there are cases when people just try, try and create this role when to, to answer um, untidiness or trouble in, in, in government. Is, is it needed? Mm. Whether uh, it's a really interesting question, I think whether it's call, whether they're called a chief of staff or not doesn't really matter. I mean, we don't have the same kind of all-powerful um, uh, US-style chief of staff in the in the UK. What is critical, uh, as I was uh, suggesting earlier, is that a prime minister is really clear about where their authority lies. I personally, maybe I would say this, think that it works quite well when you have a, a clear civil service um, uh, chain of command that where the head is the cabinet secretary and the head of the civil service. And sitting alongside that, you have a very clear political chain of command. Call them chief of staff, call them um, uh, senior advisor, or, or, or whatever. Those two things, uh, in my experience, work pretty well together. But it mm. needs to be very clear who has what authority mm. and where it's coming from the prime minister, and so that those people on both the civil service and the political sides can impose their will and their kind of mm. coherent structure on the rest of the operation. Mm. As you said, the title's a bit fluid in the British context. Someone was saying, well, what's Dominic Cummings in all this? And the answer was chief of stuff. Um, okay, we are now with no more delays or extensions or anything coming on to Brexit. Um, and let, let's turn to that because it would be dominating the front pages if it weren't for the pandemic and it would be dominating the government's time, energy, resources. And we're just weeks away from the UK ending uh, the transition period, coming to the end of the transition period. Maddie, we've had deadlines and crunch points and all this in the long Brexit uh, saga, but we're really in the final act now, aren't we? I mean, yes, basically, we, we really are. We are in the final act. I mean, you know, you mentioned weeks. I think yesterday I counted up and I think it's about seven weeks till the end of the transition period. Um, so we are really waiting to see whether or not a deal is possible with the EU. So you know, talks are continuing. But, you know, I think this week was firstly chalked up as a deadline from the EU side. I think now they've accepted, but it could go into next week. It, it's difficult in all of this to actually say, this is the final moment when you have to decide whether a deal will or will not happen. I think that, you know, there is clearly, um, 
you know, for, for a long time um, this year, we've seen where a sort of landing zone will be on a deal. We know that there are some key issues, there are some key obstacles to reaching a deal, notably fisheries, state aid, and also the sort of governance structures around a deal. But I think we, we do now know that there is a deal to be done. I think the big question is whether or not there's the political will to do so. And I think, you know, Peter was already alluding to the sort of impact that the possibly the the drama around Lee Kane, what, what impact that might have on, on the Prime Minister's decision about whether or not he wants a deal. But the way I see it, the sort of choices that the, that the government is currently faced with is on the one hand, you, you say, actually, no, look, businesses really, really want a deal. Um, yes, as Peter's already said, you know, the deal that we're looking to get is actually pretty thin. It's not hugely different to no deal, but it definitely does make a difference. Um, and there's a lot of sort of very strong desire from, I say, the business community to get anything um, agreed with the EU to try and help with um, the sort of, or at least uh, ease some of the trading conditions um, when sort of from January in terms of trade between the UK and the EU. Um, so there's a sort of rational perspective that's possibly saying, you know, from an economic perspective, getting a deal would be the best thing to do. But at the same time, I think there's a political um, an sort of perspective here that actually, if you do get a deal, the deal you're getting will still lead to disruption for the UK. It still will be more difficult to trade with the EU, and quite notably so. We'll still see those delays at the border that we're talking about in January. And so actually, I think there is a real there's a difficulty in selling any deal that you get as a victory. And actually, how does, you know, the government turn around and say, look, we've we've got what we wanted. We've got a great deal with the EU, but you still need to fill in all that paperwork. And it still will cost a lot more money to do business. And in that scenario, the UK government has to take responsibility for the disruption that will come. Whereas in a no deal scenario, it's a lot easier to try and blame it on the EU. So I think that's essentially that the political choice, I think that's got to, got to be weighed up right now um, in, in number 10. And, and it's sort of, I think a lot of people think it probably will still go, you know, a deal is still possible, but um, I think the next few weeks are going to tell us whether, whether or not the prime minister thinks that's the best, best approach. Peter, you've had jobs uh, very recently where you followed every twist and turn of Brexit. What do you think the state of play is in terms of, of readiness uh, for Brexit in, in the UK, both if we get a sliver of a deal, a wisp of a deal, or, or no deal? It's not good. Um, you know, particularly actually on the, the Great Britain to Northern Ireland border, one of actually the big arguments for a deal is that uh, it will create a political climate that will allow some more flexibility. But people should be really clear, we're going back to... 1992. If you think, uh, you know, 10,000 trucks a day go across the Channel Tunnel to go, you know, it's three and a half million trucks a year down the Kent Corridor. At the moment, they go completely frictionless. So even if you add really marginal frictions to that pipe, you can see how quickly they get blocked up. And if you, a lot of the testimony to the select committees in the last week or so, really, uh, I think, downbeat 270 million new custom declarations a year, doubts over CDS, the customs uh, software system being up and running. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be very difficult. It would be difficult in the best of times. That this is, I think that's the big political calculation uh, for Johnson is whether he wants to own this deal, because ultimately this is never, you know, you couldn't do a deal like this if your priority was about economics, about the offensive interests of our car industry and our farmer industry uh, uh, and our food and drink industry. It's all about sovereignty. That's the only way to coherently make sense of what they've done. The prime minister says, we just want Canada. Well, why? 
Why do we want to put our footing, you know, 50% of our trade, 43% of our goods exports go to Europe? Why do we want to put them on the same footing as Canada? There's no rational basis for that other than we want to impose sovereignty. And the real choice that's coming for Johnson now, because the EU is turning the screw, the EU doesn't see Johnson as anywhere to go but to do a deal, is whether he does a deal that actually, from a Brexiteer point of view, gives away sovereignty, leaves us bound hand and foot by uh, uh, EU regulations, whether, you know, even if it's indirectly, or whether Johnson is prepared to do essentially what he did when he resigned over the Chequers deal, which is basically do Brexit properly if you're a real Brexiteer. Uh, otherwise, he's going to end up in the in the worst of all worlds. I mean, there's been no pitch rolling really for a no deal. But I think, you know, in Johnson's gut, that's going to be uh, uh, the choice. You know, he's pushed this all the way from the point where he resigned over Chequers, rejected May's deal, rejected compromises to take back control, that, that talismanic slogan. Uh, and, and if he caves right at the end now, the risk, I think, from a vote leave perspective is that um, he will have incrementally increased the kind of uh, ability to keep the trucks moving, the competence question, but he'll have given away on the valence, on the values question. And the vote leavers may well argue that's politically more damaging than the no deal. Alex, what role has Parliament got in this? The House of Lords um, inflicted a huge defeat on the UK internal markets bill, 433 to 165 this week. Where's that going to go? Well, it, it, the short answer is it goes back to the Commons. But correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't think the government has scheduled a date for that, um, though we'd expect it to come back, you know, perhaps sometime in December. But it's highly dependent on how the negotiations uh, go. So I think uh, the government will hold out and wait and see if a deal is done. Um, if that happens, then I would expect them to remove the, uh, um, uh, from the Lord's point of view, offending clauses from the um, Internal Markets Bill and uh, it, 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 it sails on and becomes law. If a deal is not done, there'll be an absolutely um, fascinating uh, clash between the Lords and the Commons. <clears throat> I don't think, um, well, you know, assuming the government um, wants to keep these uh, these clauses in, uh, I, I don't think this is like most pieces of legislation where the Lords have, you know, one or two goes at it. I think there is a, a majority and the Lords really dug in against these clauses. That is That includes Conservatives, but obviously the sort of crossbench and uh, Labour and Liberal Democrat votes in the Lords are very solid on this. Um, but if we're in a no deal, we're uh, sort of heading towards the end of the year, the government will put extraordinary pressure on the Lords. And I'm, I'm not sure we would have seen anything. So, well, I was going to say that, but some of the, some of the, uh, uh, some of the disputes uh, last year uh, may, may um, uh, rival it, but there will be an extreme clash. And I, 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 I suspect under that sort of extreme pressure, the Lords would end up peeling off and saying the Commons has the democratic legitimacy and would let the clauses through. But I really don't know. I, I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which the inner circle that was responsible for those international law-breaking clauses is att are attached to them. You know, if you go back to it being an expression of sovereignty, uh, the, the, the David Frost uh, uh, arguments for those clauses are very strong. And it was noteworthy that when Boris Johnson spoke to von der Leyen last weekend, he did not reassure her. Indeed, you know, he actually said they're still planning to put forward the finance bill, which, remember, will contain those no, the, the notwithstanding clauses that cover tariffs going from on goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, given that the EU didn't break the talks down over the first 
lot of clauses, what it does if Johnson tables the finance bill. I think they're those they're quite talismanic for the for the inner circle. Those clauses again in terms of defending uh, British sovereignty, and they don't necessarily think the EU will blow up a deal over them. Yeah, so, Maddie, you've been looking at this and the the, the, the tussle between Parliament and and the government, uh, several governments, or the two governments. Uh, where do you reckon this goes? Well, what I was going to add, and I mean, Peter's already mentioned it, but the finance bill, I think, is actually really important um, and definitely something to watch for because um, the UK Internal Market Bill, it sort of deals with two issues relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, One on sort of state aid and how far the extent to which the the provisions on state aid within the protocol reach into what happens in Great Britain. And then the others around um, exit summary declarations, so bits of paper um, that need to accompany goods moving from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. But but this, but the key issue, um, and I think this is going to be a big problem if agreement isn't reached in the joint committee, and that's not on the future relationship, that's the um, body that oversees the application of the withdrawal agreement, is if they cannot reach a, de- a definition of what goods are not at risk of moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and then on into the rest of the EU. And that's a real concern because if we don't have a deal on the future relationship and then no agreement is reached on what goods will not be at risk of moving sort of into the EU single market, then all goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will by default have to pay tariffs and that's the thing that the government I think is particularly concerned about and that's what they'll try and tackle with the finance bill and with the finance bill that type of legislation isn't open to amendment in the House of Lords so you don't have quite the same sort of back and forth that you might see over the UK internal market bill and and I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether agreement can be reached in the joint committee I think you know it's difficult to, to sort of disentangle these two sets of negotiations with the EU I think they are ultimately related you know if there's political will in one area that will help in the other um, but I think that's going to be something that will be you know more possibly more momentous in 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 December but also as I say that that will I think be very much contingent on whether agreement is reached at the joint committee um, so but I do agree with Alex on the UK internal market bill you know it was the biggest defeat in the House of Lords since 1999 I think we are going to see the Lords really dig in um, I mean it is worth saying that one of the things that we've been looking at um, in the Brexit team at the Institute is um, what the government might need to do to actually implement any deal if a deal is is agreed with the EU because unlike last time, there's not going to be a meaningful vote in the same way in the House of Commons. But we have seen Lord Frost say that there will be some kind of primary legislation that will be needed to pass to implement a deal. And I think it will be very interesting to see um, sort of when that comes out, sort of how um, members of the Conservative Party in particular respond to it, but also the Labour Party, where we've seen uh, Keir Starmer's sort of his general approach is let's not talk about Brexit, let's let the government get on and do it. But how is the Labour Party going to vote on any legislation that implements a deal if we get that far? So I would say that, you know, drama over Brexit is definitely not finished in in Parliament. um, And and it's definitely something we're going to have to be looking for in December. Let's leave that for now. Let's come on to relocation. Now, when it isn't battling a pandemic or trying to shape the UK's post-EU future, the government is also thinking about how to overhaul the way the civil service works. And one question it keeps asking is where the civil service works. The government wants to relocate around 22,000 civil servants to what it calls overlooked and hitherto undervalued communities. So is this a good idea? And if so, what needs to be done to make it work? Well, we've got a new report out this week, and it answers some of those questions. Its author, Sarah Nixon, senior researcher, joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bronwyn. 
relocating civil servants is part of the government's plans to level up the country, isn't it? Does it make sense? Well, um, it it can help levelling up um, in a limited way, but it's not going to be a silver bullet. And there's a pretty big trade-off at play here. So on the one hand, you can take parts of government departments to small deprived towns, but you might struggle to recruit there, recruit the people you need, and you might struggle to persuade your existing workforce to move with you. On the other hand, you can target large cities where you can access um, a, you know, a deep talent pool and spread civil service jobs further across the country, but that's probably not going to quite tick the levelling up boxes that ministers have talked about. No, that's fascinating because the point, one of the points you're making in, in that is this isn't devolution. This isn't saying, government saying, look, we're going to give some dollops of money and power away to different bits of, of the country. Lots of advocates for uh, for that uh, too. But this is simply saying we're going to take some people who are working in central London at the moment and put them around the country. The question is, what, you know, when does that work and when, when does it not? Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right. What they're talking about is taking civil servants doing what they're already doing and having them do it in a different place. And one thing that we did ask people when we interviewed them, people who were working on on policies um, that applied across the board, um, across the country that weren't place specific. And we said to them, you know, has, has these are people working outside London. And we said to them, has the fact that you are in a different part of the country, seeing a different way of life, has that made an impact on um, the way that you've done policy? And, and people kind of look at you a bit quizzically and um, the, generally the feeling we got from those people was that their location hadn't made a difference to, um, you know, their what they produced, the programs they ran. Um, so you're quite right, Bronwyn, that the government really shouldn't confuse moving civil servants with, you know, changing the way that decisions are made. So if you're going to do it, what, what makes, it, makes it successful? Yeah, so there's... Three big things that I would highlight from our research. The first is picking somewhere that's going to have the skills that you need, by and large, for most departments, that's going to be large cities. The second is making sure that you don't just take one isolated work unit um, and, you know, plonking them somewhere on their own, but you need to build up a decent base of government jobs so people have the ability to move upwards and sideways without having to go back to London. And the third thing is making sure that ministers and senior civil servants are fully on board with the plans. Right. Um, Peter, do you think ministers should relocate? It is an interesting one, isn't it? You know, who's going to be posted to the shires uh, uh, while all the action is going on? In when, is, when, is the, when is the Institute for Government, government, government moving its headquarters to, uh, uh, to, 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 to the... I don't know where it is at the moment, and coronavirus has actually raised a really interesting. Sarah's talking us now to us now for, from Australia, where she's been working um, with the IFG via Zoom for, for months now, and showing us all how um, well extreme remote remote working can can work. And you know, you, way, you know, Whitehall better than, than anybody. I mean, I my, my feeling is actually that this is the, the, the way you if you want to move. This is a devolution question in a way. Farming bits of Whitehall out to the regions is sort of missing the point. The problem, as we've seen with coronavirus, is that actually Westminster still treats the regions like they're some, you know, distant colony. Uh, 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 you know, there is a kind of colonial mans- mindset. And until you actually start to devolve power, and that means also fiscal power, more to the regions, when you do that and power is genuinely residing in the regions, you're going to naturally attract people who want to go and work for Andy Burnham, who want to go and work in the in the operations of 
government in those regions. And I think that's what will actually drive levelling up and would actually drive a better and more equitable approach to government, whether that will happen. I, I, I think you make a very strong argument there. Uh, and that this um, part of my concern about it is that it's confusion. Um, because your point about where is a headquarters, well, you know, some headquarters may have gone gone virtual, but um, some organisations such as the IFG, um, to the extent they need to talk to other people physically, if that's possible again, you know, the people, some of the people we need to talk to are in central government and indeed in the, uh, uh, in the, um, the House of Commons and Lords currently located in uh, in Westminster. So there's a, an element that it's hard to um, to get away from. Alex, you, you were a civil servant until the end of last year. Were you ever asked to relocate? And how do you think your colleagues looked at this whole question? So I, I was not, but I think that's partly because I, I tended to do the jobs that are the ones that haven't uh, relocated, the sort of policy jobs and working in ministers' private offices and, and, and so on. And I think, I mean, I, I, I do think a, an effort and a drive to relocate is is, is a good thing. Um, I share sort of some of Peter's scepticism about the, you know, the way Whitehall works and the, you know, proximity is power and, and, and so on. But for most civil servants, I don't think there is a, a sort of insuperable bar to, uh, to moving. Uh, and this is a, this has been a long running, um, a, a long running uh, uh, objective of successive governments. I remember when I started in the early 2000s, there was a big move to get lots of civil servants out of London that did lead to some uh, moves, but it tended to be the corporate support functions rather than policy and, and, and senior people. I think there has been a change, though, certainly talking to former colleagues and picking up on the enthusiasms of the civil service. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, it was there was a bit of cynicism, a bit of scepticism, not wanting to move out of London. Now, whether it's cultural change you know, before the pandemic, cultural changes, um, house prices in London, um, the nature of people's lives, there is much more enthusiasm for this now, I think, than there was 10, 15 years ago. So, Sarah, do you think this is going to happen? 22,000 jobs moving? Well, I mean, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But, I mean, history shows that government departments are actually more than capable of meeting these targets, big targets when they're set for them for relocations. Um, I think, and Alex picked up on this before, I think the big question is not whether, you know, the government can move civil servants out of London, but which civil servants move out of London. And particularly when it comes to civil senior civil service jobs, Will they stay in those relocate in, in those regional areas or will they drift back to London because they want to be in person in front of ministers? So to me that's that's the big question. Thanks. Peter, I want to come briefly to another area of civil service reform, and that's the way the government uses consultants. We now hear in a story that your own paper broke that the government wants to set up a crown consultancy, an in-house team to provide the services currently performed by external consultants on which it spends a lot of money. Uh, what is an in-house consultant and what problem is it trying to solve it's an interesting one isn't it i i go back to michael goes uh, ditchley lecture uh, where he talked about this uh, this, this, this summer um, this summer michael go gave a, a, a kind of quite ex- sweeping lecture at, at ditch the ditchley foundation but one of the things he talked about was the extent to which uh, consultants can be used as a sort of, um, you know, blame dodging, a, a prophylactic for res- civil servants trying to dodge responsibility. Uh, and and it's not clear to me uh, whether actually this is, again, part of the government's uh, kind of centralisation and control agenda. Um, you know, do you have a kind of crack team of cabinet office stroke number 10 consultants coming in and sorting out uh, ineffectual bits of the civil service, you know, the sort of Cummings commissariat. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, 
I sort of feel that, um, you know, the, the problems go deeper than consultancy. You know, how does this consultancy attract the kind of people who would be earning top dollar uh, at, at PwC or Bain? Um, how does it, how would it be any different from PwC and Bain coming in uh, and um, without relevant expertise, you know, often, you know, consultants aren't they used to give the hurry up, you know, whether it's McKinsey coming into a private sector or, or PwC coming into a government department, they're there to sort of put everybody on edge. They're there to, so how would a crown consultancy be different from that? And would it essentially be a sort of slightly second rate version of that? Yeah. None of that is clear, to be honest. Yeah. And it might be cheaper is one of the uh, one of the arguments for oh, yeah. it. And I think there's one of the points I've heard ministers make is that, you you, you know, you have exactly the same uh, 23, 24, 25 year olds who are on the fast stream um, being uh, paid far, far more and certainly costing the government far more, um, producing the same sort of PowerPoint presentations, whether they're in McKinsey or Deloitte or, or wherever. My, my worry about this is, it, 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 I mean, partly, as you say, Peter, it, it won't actually save that much money. It's not a, it's not a bad idea, I don't think. And, 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 and if the government takes it seriously and and uh, make sure it's a kind of uh, strong enough central unit it will be a useful resource for government but it's not going to save uh, that much money the, the the problems that people reach for consultants to solve are, are far uh, deeper than a, a, a kind of internal inevitably limited in-house consultancy will that's right well, consultancy, then it just the way alex has described it these are civil servants might be a floating team of fast streamers yeah yeah, yeah. So they're not consultants um at all, it was fascinating. We're going to have to um, explore that as it as it gets uh, more real or fails to do so. But we're going to have to wrap up really sadly at that point. That is the end of this week's inside briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Maddie Tumont, Jack, Sarah Nixon, and especially to Peter Foster. Brilliant to have you all with us. Thanks to you all at home for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There are some great new shows for you there, including a special look at the US election and a very timely discussion on how scientific advice informs government policy, how government uses its scientists. You can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, and find all our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review. We love them, whatever they say. So that's it for today. Inside Briefing is not going to be relocating. Same time, same place in the universe. We'll be here next week. See you then.